My name is Norma Farthing, and I am a member of the teaching team here at Grace. How honored I am to be numbered among that group of dedicated men and women. It's just such an honor, and it's a real pleasure for me to represent them before you today. Um, welcome you, whether you're sitting in the sanctuary or listening to the podcast. Unfortunately, we don't have a live stream, but um, you're welcome. It's just a blessing to have you here. Every 10 years or so, the American Film Institute produces a list of the top 100 films of all time. The list rarely changes much. Titles may shift around a bit in the rankings, and a smattering of new titles sometimes boot out the old ones. But for the most part, the lists remain static. A great film will always be a great film. And the number one film on every AFI list is Citizen Kane. It's the 1941 classic produced, directed, written by, and starring Orson Welles. It's an Orson Welles production. As the story opens, publishing magnate Charles Foster Kane lies dying while people around the world wait in hushed expectation for his dying words. Can we see the clip? Can't, can't see it? It's okay. We'll just move right along. Go to YouTube, see the clip. <laughs> Citizen Kane's dying words. Y'all, he says rosebud. Rosebud. One word. And in order to understand that word, viewers have to enter the very recesses of Kane's life. A person's final words always have special significance. And to understand Rosebud, as I've said, you have to kind of poke around in Cain's brain. That is never more true. Final words are never more important than when we hear Jesus speak them as he is dying. As he speaks them from the cross. Those last words are the focus of our study this week as we continue our examination of the Gospel of John and as we prepare for Easter. Altogether, Jesus spoke seven times as he died. John presents three, Luke presents three, and Matthew and Mark together present one. Chronologically, they occur like this, so you can listen for them as we go through. Father, forgive them. Today with me in paradise, woman, behold your son. My God, why? I thirst, it is finished, Father, into your hands. 
In a profound and sublime way, these last words of Jesus uncover for us the depths of his soul. What occupied his thoughts as he died? Why did he choose those particular words? And why was he so often silent? Interestingly, today marks the last week of Lent and the beginning of Holy Week. It's Palm Sunday. As we are watching Messiah die here at 2828, many churches are celebrating his entry into Jerusalem. On Thursday, Friday, and perhaps Saturday, Christians around the world will rem remember Messiah's last words, his last hours, with tenebrae services, stations of the cross, and meditation and prayer. And they will say prayers much like this one. They're called scripture prayers, and they are powerfully spiritual and deeply moving. You do not have to be a prayer warrior to say them. But you do have to say them out loud. So, will we, you have just a moment of silence with me? And then say this prayer with me, please. Let us pray. Merciful Father of us all, through Isaiah the prophet, you promised that though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. As we remember our sins and failings, give us trusting and penitent hearts your broken promises of forgiveness. By the precious blood of Jesus shed on the hill of Golgotha, wash us clean of all our offenses and make us your loving and obedient children now and forever. In his name and for his glory, amen. Thank you. When John and I were in D.C. a while back, we visited the new Bible Museum there. Regardless what you think about the folks behind it, the museum itself is a phenomenal thing. Like everything in D.C., it takes a lot more time than anybody has. So you have to be judicious about what you see there. We decided to visit only the exhibits we knew would not be there when we came back. This was our favorite. The Stations of the Cross by sculptor Gibb Singleton. John and I have seen such work often, even on the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem. But these pieces were especially moving it was difficult to walk away from any one of them, much less the entire collection. They made crucifixion very real. We felt as if we were actually there. 
And that's the way we should read about the crucifixion in Scripture. We should position ourselves inside the text and use our senses to experience what we're reading. It's the only way to grasp what happened to Jesus on the cross. It's hard for us to get our mind around crucifixion. We've never seen anything like it. And films, paintings, stained glass church windows and passion plays depict saccharine, romanticized versions of the ghastliest form of capital punishment ever invented. Think about that. Think what we've done to the cross. We display it in our processions. Place it on our church spires. Decorate our homes and our churches with it. And even craft it into jewelry we can wear. Around Easter, it usually looks like this. And during elections and political debates, it often looks like this. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Except for those decorous loincloths, Crucifixion looks a lot more like this. Not even a graphic film like Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ can capture the horrific sights, sounds, and smells surrounding crucifixion. In New Testament times, everyone had seen it. The sight of completely naked men in agony, their bodily functions taking place in full view of all, the sounds of their groans and labored breathing going on for hours and sometimes days, and worst of all, nobody cared. In these days of personal rights, death is a private affair. Even a criminal gets to choose who sees him or her die. When Jesus died, however, the people elbowed their way into the crowd to gawk at his humiliation. It was like a festival. Oh, wait, it was a festival. It was the Passover. The time when God delivered his people from Egyptian bondage. When they were told to kill a lamb, cook a lamb, eat a lamb, swab that lamb's blood on their doors. So that the death angel would pass over. It was a holy day. These people had turned it into a holiday and they were having a party. So they took Jesus, and carrying his own cross, he went out to the place called the place of the skull, called in Aramaic Golgotha. There they crucified him along with two others, one on each side with Jesus in the middle. 
Pilate also had a notice written and fastened to the cross, which read, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Thus, many of the Jewish residents of Jerusalem read this notice because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the notice was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. When the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said he was the king of the Jews, Jesus answered, What I have written, I have written, which being interpreted is, it is what it is. They crucified him. What an understatement. It's almost 9 a.m. He's been up all night, shuttled through civil and ecclesiastical trials, mocked, beaten, whipped, slapped, his beard yanked out, his head crowned with thorns, and forced to carry his own cross. And now... They jerk his arms and legs out of joint to render him helpless, tie his arms to a wooden beam, and drive iron spikes into each hand. Attaching that beam to another one, they cross his feet and pound a spike into both heels. With each thud, pain jolts his body, but not once does he cry out. Instead, he begins to pray. Father, forgive them. He keeps saying it over and over. The verb is progressive. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Understanding this background makes Jesus' first word, a word of forgiveness, more compelling. It is addressed to his Father, and it means more than forgive them. It means condemn me instead. Put their sin on my account. And who is them in this prayer? Well, we could name a bunch of folks, right? The Jews. Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, the mob. Oh, no, 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 no. The Gentiles, Pilate, Herod, the soldiers. Hmm. Maybe Judas, who betrayed him. Maybe Peter, who denied him. Maybe those other sorry disciples who deserted him. Who were the sinners Jesus had in mind? Around the cross moves a potpourri of races, cultures, genders, and religious beliefs, and Jesus knows they are all sinners. They're ignorant sinners, religious sinners, condemned sinners, convicted sinners, devoted sinners, and yes, absent sinners. That's us, y'all. I pray not just for these, but for those who follow them. Remember that? We are the absent sinners at the cross. Oh, we can protest that we weren't there that day, and so surely Jesus didn't mean us. But that's why we put ourselves in the story. As Rembrandt did in his famous painting, which reminds me, I was going to have a copy of the teaching guide up here. 
you must use that thing this week. You just must. You must. It is excellent, and it makes so much of this stuff come alive. In Rembrandt's famous painting, he always he put himself. Um, we knew, he knew, and we must know and confess that it was our sin. The sin of each of us individually that nailed Jesus to the cross. Jesus, the innocent one, was murdered by us. It was our voices crying, crucify him and give us Barabbas and we have no king but Caesar. It was our hands driving the nails into his flesh and pressing thorns upon his head. Our desperately wicked hearts taking delight in his shame and humiliation. To claim our share of the grace we must accept our share of the guilt. Even Pilate seems to understand that. Is that his own confession nailed there above Jesus' head? Did he really believe Jesus to be the king of the Jews? Or was he simply too weak or fearful to say so out loud and therefore wrote it down and refused to change what he had written? We don't know for sure. But Pilate's principal concern was whether Jesus was a political threat. Are you a king? He asked. Jesus responded, you say so. Now here is Pilate. After having repeatedly declared Jesus innocent, writing, king of the Jews, and refusing to budge, over one word said. Who's in charge? Jesus appears to be at his most powerless. A crucified person was the lowliest, most despicable of creatures, yet early Christians proclaimed a degraded, condemned, crucified person as the Son of God and Savior of the world. By any ordinary standard, and especially by religious standards, this is simply unthinkable. Fleming Rutledge writes, here is one of the most powerful arguments for the truth of the Christian faith. The re human religious imagination could not have arrived at a notion so utterly foreign to generally accepted spiritual ideas as that of a crucified Messiah. Now, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and made four shares for each soldier, and the tunic remained. Now, the tunic was seamless, woven from top to bottom as a single piece. So the soldiers said to one another, let's not tear it, but throw dice to see who will get it. This took place to fulfill the scripture that says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they threw dice. So the soldiers did these things. There are nearly 400 prophecies in the Old Testament relating specifically to Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, so forth. Psalm 22, quoted here, alone contains 
30 precise references to Jesus' crucifixion. Although it was written a thousand years before Jesus died, the psalm declares his suffering in vivid detail. Again, teaching God. It reveals that he suffered emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, and even materially. Completely unaware that they were fulfilling prophecy. These Roman soldiers sat under their cross gambling for his clothes. And because his tunic was woven and therefore seamless, they decided not to tear it, but rather to roll dice for it. All four Gospels tell that story. So it's bound to be important. Interestingly, Levitical law required the high priest to wear a seamless tunic woven of fine linen. I'm looking at those ladies in my Cove Bible study. We've been talking about this very thing, haven't we? A seamless woven tunic. Subtly but powerfully, the Gospels point out that Jesus wore the uniform of the high priest Entirely appropriate for the one who was to atone for the sins of the world. But there's more. While it was common for people to rip their clothes in grief or remorse, the high priest was forbidden to rip his. If he did, he nullified his ministry as high priest. Matthew and Mark both tell us that when Caiaphas, the high priest, had finished questioning Jesus, he tore his robe. In other words, the high priest had been made redundant. His role was invalidated. He had been replaced. We have a new high priest. Now, standing beside Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the mother of Clophus and Mary Magdalene. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, look, here is your son. Son, look, here is your mother. He then, he then said to his disciple, Look, here is your mother. From that very time, the disciple took her into his own home. This is Jesus' third saying. But we don't want to skip two because it's important. The Bible reveals Jesus to be a unique union of man and God. One moment he's just another guest at a wedding, the next he's turning water into wine. One moment he sleeps in the bottom of a boat so exhausted he doesn't even hear the storm, and the next he orders the winds to stop and they obey. One moment he weeps outside the tomb of a dear friend, the next he calls the man's name and Lazarus walks out alive. These contrasts mark his entire life. And we see them on the cross as well. Having asked God to forgive his executioners, Jesus hangs silently until late morning when with all the authority of heaven, he flings open the gates of paradise and admits one forgiven sinner. Today you will be with me in paradise, he says. All the blasphemy, the ridicule, the scorn, nothing moves Jesus to speak. But when he heard that thief, 
He spoke immediately. Just think about that. Even as he himself is dying, Jesus cares and responds to the needs of somebody else. And he does that in the next statement as well. That's why these two follow each other. As the Son of God, Jesus died for the whole world. As a man, he remembered one hurting woman. Only John records Jesus' words to his mother, and significantly, John prefaces that statement with the incident about the lottery for his clothes. No doubt Mary had made the woven tunic that identified Jesus as high priest. To see it bartered away by crude soldiers surely broke her heart. But Mary was used to pain. From the beginning, her relationship with Jesus troubled her. Labeled an unwed mother, she had birthed Jesus in a cave used to shelter animals. For months, she had lived in Egypt, a fugitive from the deranged king who wanted to kill her baby. Life in Nazareth had been hard, too, with more children, meager income from a carpenter's shop, and the early death of her husband. And now, this? With her son suspended on a cross above her, dying in agony like a common criminal, she watches helplessly as four unfeeling pagans gambled for his only earthly possession. That tunic she made for him. How Mary came to the cross, we don't know, but she was there with several other women, a courageous group who stood by weeping, demonstrating the kind of love for Jesus that not even death can destroy. And John was there. At whatever personal risk, he showed up when the other disciples did not. For Jesus to speak meant excruciating pain. Nevertheless, he spoke to his mother and to John, who would care for her after Jesus died. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. As far back as Augustine, the church has interpreted this to mean that we should be nice to our mothers. We should care for our mothers because Jesus cared for his. That's true. But as someone has observed, Good Friday is not the first Mother's Day. There's a lot more to this word than Jesus' faithful devotion to his mother. Jesus, uh, Mary appears only twice in John's Gospel, here and at the marriage in Cana in chapter 2. Neither time is she named. It is from Luke that we know her name is Mary. Jesus simply calls her woman. By calling Mary woman... He severs their family tie and creates a new relationship with her that transcends DNA. This saying is not about being nice to your mother. It's about the new community that comes into being through the power of Jesus Christ. 
Often we hear people say they can be religious without church, that their community is their support group or their social group or even their political affiliations. We hear people railing against the church and Lord knows there's a lot to rail about. But the Christian community has a quality that the critics do not take into consideration. When the Christian community is working the way it's supposed to, people are brought together who have absolutely nothing in common whose views are polar opposite. They may even actively dislike each other. Yet, in the Christian community, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Therein lies the power of the Christian community. Jesus has done something completely new. In giving his mother to his disciple and his disciple to his mother, he brings into existence an entirely new relationship. Something that did not exist before. They are no longer just individual people. Rather, they represent the way family ties are transcended in the church through the power of the Spirit. That's why Jesus calls Mary woman in the Gospel of John. He's setting aside the blood relationship in order to create a much wider family. Brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, cousins, aunts, and uncles are created by the Spirit of Christ where no blood relationship whatsoever exists. It is the new covenant in his blood. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. We need a different attitude toward church. After this, Jesus, realizing that by this time everything was completed, said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was there, so they put a sponge soaked in sour wine on a branch of hyssop and lifted it to his mouth. When he had received the sour wine, Jesus said, it is completed. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Reading about the crucifixion, we may get the idea that everything happened quickly. Not so. Jesus was sentenced about six in the morning, nailed to the cross about nine, and died about three in the afternoon. The first three hours, he sweltered in the blazing oriental sun. The blood covering his body dried and crusted. His parched lips cracked open. His tongue thickened. His blood pooled in his heart and lungs. And his breathing became short, asthmatic gasp. Then at noon, when the sun should have shone brightest, darkness suddenly enveloped the scene. For three hours, no one moved, no one spoke. The laughter, the jeering, the taunts all stopped. Why? The best interpreter of this event is Jesus himself. And Jesus said, darkness fell, 
because God left. God is light, John wrote in his first letter. In him is no darkness at all. In those three hours, God turned his back on his son. Both Matthew and Mark report that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was his fourth word. Could be that Jesus was expressing the agony of his physical suffering. Could be that the agony of emotional and spiritual separation from God had pressed in upon him so severely that he needed to cry out. It could be the ultimate indication of his humanity and of his willingness to bear the sin of the world on our behalf. Or it could be that he was singing. Amy Julia Becker calls this the song Jesus sang on the cross. The first line and several that follow are from Psalm 22. Again. And like other psalms, this one ends in triumph and hope. A cry of des uh, desolation ends with a promise, with a declaration of God's goodness and faithfulness. It is a cry that many of us have offered in the midst of our own moments of desolation, a reminder that God himself experienced suffering and sorrow. In these dark times, may we remember that Jesus' cry of desolation points us back to the God who does not forget us. The God who rescues and redeems and always, always points us toward hope. Y'all, even in that agonized cry, it was my God. My God. Again, who's in charge? It seems that Jesus managed his crucifixion to fulfill prophecy. And once he knew all had been fulfilled, he was ready to announce, mission accomplished. A problem with so many passion narratives is that they portrayed Jesus as a victim rather than a victor. In John's gospel, Jesus is sovereign from beginning to end. Nobody takes my life from me, he declares. I lay it down for my sheep. The crucifixion is not an accident, a mistake, an unfortunate slip-up. It is the deliberate self-offering of the good shepherd. And when he says, I thirst... It is to show that he is fulfilling his purpose according to the plan of God from the beginning of time. Of course, there's significance in that particular phrase. Why thirst? You'll remember what we've learned already in John, how Jesus is God, has been from the beginning, how he created all things, including every drop of water in the universe, how he stood up in the temple and declared himself to be the living water prophesied by Isaiah, how he turned water into wine, how he told the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well that he offers water that quenches thirst for all time and eternity. John's gospel is just full of water. And we know Psalm 23 by heart, don't we? The Lord is my shepherd. 
He leads me beside still waters. Now, the good shepherd is dying. Laying down his life for his beloved sheep. And it is the shepherd who is thirsty. Hearing that Jesus is thirsty, the soldiers dip a sponge in sour wine and lift it to his lips, prompting his sixth word. Complete it. It is, the, it is only one word in Greek, a commercial term meaning paid in full, finished, done, nothing left. Jesus suffering, finished, the pain, the humiliation, the separation from God, finished all those Old Testament prophecies about him, finished, done, nothing owed, nothing left to pay. But that's not all. This is not a sigh of relief, but a cry of triumph and victory. Not just an exclamation of fulfillment, but a thunderous shout of finality paid in full. Y'all remember that, Kai? For the benefit of his audience, Jesus announces what he has already settled privately with his father. I have finished the work you sent me to do. After years of hard work, labor problems, drought, and countless other setbacks, the tracks of the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific finally met in Promontory, Utah. A golden spike was driven to symbolize their completion, and the news flashed across America. The last rail is laid, the last strike is driven, the continent is joined in an excelling way. Jesus spanned the gap between God and sinners. When he died, the last sacrifice was made. The last spike driven. The work finished. Through Jesus' completed work on the cross, we have a new covenant, a spiritual law, and that's all we need. Finished may well be the most important word in the Bible. All the codicils and rules and laws and caveats and additions we insist on for ourselves and for other people. Simply crucify Christ afresh, afresh, afresh. So why do we do that? Why can't we just accept it is finished and thank God for his gift of grace through Jesus Christ? My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Doesn't that just make you want to shout? Having finished his mission, Jesus uttered his final word, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Ordinarily, crucifixion took days, but Jesus died in six hours. Between nine and noon, he spoke three times to pray for his executioners, to accept the penitent thief, and to commit John to the care of his mother. At noon, when darkness blank, uh, blanketed the scene, he didn't speak again for nearly three hours when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Then after the darkness had lifted, he spoke in quick succession. I thirst. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. No famous last words surpass these. Not only because Jesus said them, but also because they reveal to us the very heart of God. Listening to Jesus speak from the cross, we grasp something of God's love and concern for us. Y'all, Jesus did not die because God was mad at us. Because God was angry with us. Jesus died because God loves us. Jesus knows from personal experience how it feels to be surrounded by vicious, hateful people. To be bullied, if you will. He understands the pain of saying goodbye to people we love. He knows physical discomfort like thirst and spiritual agony like God's turning away his face. Jesus even knows how it feels to die. This is a high priest who is touched by the feelings of our infirmities. He proved that to us in his life. And he proved it to us in his death. Hallelujah. What a savior. According to John, Jesus gave up his spirit. Literally, he dismissed it as a master would dismiss a servant. He let it go. The Greek verb implies that he gave it to God for safekeeping. Much like we would deposit money in a bank. Clearly, Jesus expected death to be temporary. It may be Friday today, but Sunday's coming. So, we've sat at the foot of the cross. We've heard our Lord's famous last words to the world and to us. How will we respond? As the thief who repents or the one who refuses? As the soldiers just doing a job? Or as the one who finally acknowledges Jesus as God? As the religious crowd determined to maintain the status quo? As the rabble who claim no king but Caesar? As the lone disciple who shows up despite his personal risk? Or as those faithful, weeping women who stand at the cross until Jesus is buried and then show up first thing Sunday morning to minister to him. We have to choose. The one thing we cannot do is leave the cross unchanged. So now we're going to enter into a time of communion. Say more about that in just a minute. Giving.